everybody. Uh, welcome to the podcast. It may interest you to know. I'm Tony and Marcolini, and I'm joined today by a very special guest uh, who I am I'm really excited to be able to get to talk to. I've been waiting for this interview for quite a while since we scheduled it. Um, Dr. Campbell is a is a biochemist uh, who is a professor at Cornell University uh, and also has written several books on the impact of nutrition on our health and several diseases. So welcome, Dr. Campbell. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure, without a doubt. Well, the first time I became familiar with you, and I, it, may, it may be uh, when most people uh, have, was with the China study, right? You, you ultimately published a book on the China study, but you were involved in the actual research. Yeah, I was. In fact, I was the director. I was the sort of founder, started it. Uh, this was back in, uh, actually, it started in 1981, to believe it or not. <laughs> uh, that was right after the United States and China, you know, were beginning to exchange visits after Nixon's visit. And the first Chinese delegation that came to this country included uh, among their group a very well-known uh, physician in China. His grandfather was uh, actually the compatriot of Sun Yat-sen, who overthrew the Chinese dynasty. Right. In 1911, his father was the first ambassador, Chinese ambassador to the United Nations um, in 1940, what was it, 46, 47, I think it was, uh, just prior to the revolution. So he was a well-known, he was from a well-known family. Um, and Dr. Shen himself, uh, Shen Zhuanshu was his name, he he uh, was then spent some time in my lab working. He was the first Chinese scientist to come to the United States. So I was kind of lucky in a way. I really got in on the very first uh, sort of, if you will, operations in China. And we, we organized a project in China, which was the first research project between our two countries, which was an interesting experience. Can you describe what the study entailed and what the results were? Yes, at that time, I already had been getting information in the laboratory, uh, using experimental animals, I should say, uh, that were showing that animal protein is a problem. That was a problem for me as well as everyone else. I mean, I came from a farm milking cows, and I had done my doctoral dissertation on advancing the consumption of animal protein. So I saw that in the Philippines prior to that. And uh, so we learned some things in the laboratory, quite a few things. Animal protein turns on experimental cancer, makes it grow faster. And then we take it away and it turns it off. We could turn on or turn off cancer very dramatically and very rapidly. I found this startling, absolutely startling. And quite frankly, not believable in a way, uh, but that's the way it was. Uh, and so I kept at it. And the more we did, uh, the more amazing it became. And that research was all funded by the uh, National Institutes of Health for many years. And then finally, when Dr. Chen came along in 1980, 81, uh, I learned from him that the Chinese had just finished or just completed a massive catalog, uh, atlas of cancer mortality across the country. Uh, where cancer was located, was localized geographically for about a dozen different cancers. And so, I mean, it would be, the, the cancer would be very high in certain regions, very low in others. 
So uh, he then agreed to join me in organizing a study uh, that also included uh, a very well-known epidemiologist from the University of Oxford in England. And then one more person, the guy who was the director of that atlas in China. So there were four of us. And uh, we organized the study and it was, uh, it, we collected as much information we could in a total of 130 different villages around the country in order to see what we could see about why these diseases were so high in certain regions and not in others. And uh, with a massive amount of information, New York Times later called it the Grand Prix of, of uh, epidemiology, which was a very complimentary thing to say. Yeah, but I read that. But we did collect a lot of information on uh, nutritional characteristics in particular. And I had, a, uh, at that time, also a very specific interest and the extent to which what I was learning in the laboratory among experimental animals, whether that was equivalent to what we might see in humans. And so there it was. I mean, it was a perfect opportunity to go to a population of humans, very right. unique, unique population in the world, actually, and see how the, our results stack up against what we were learning in the humans. And it did. It did very well. And what did the results ultimately tell you? Well, what, what it basically it said, it confirmed what we were learning in the laboratory first off, but uh, basically the higher the consumption of animal protein-based diets, the greater is the risk to heart disease, all these cancers, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, and so forth. I mean, it was quite amazing and it was very consistent. That's another feature of it that was important. Uh, what we tended to see in one disease was true in the other disease. And so, uh, I mean, it, it was really quite spectacular. And I think the one key, I guess, metric observation more than any was the fact that in China, serum cholesterol levels in the blood, which is an indication of heart disease, they were, in this country, they ranged from a low about 140 or 150 or so to 300 at that time. And here in China, we were seeing a range from 88 to 160, amazing, their high was near our low. And so in this country, the traditional view was that our cholesterol level can be too low. So when I saw this in China, the average was only 125. I said, this can't be right. So we went back and then analyzed in two more laboratories for these 6,500 people in the study. And what, what we found was sure enough, when the cholesterol is down around 88, 90, 90 or so, average for a village, and it starts going up, heart disease risk starts increasing. And all these diseases start to increase too. And that was significant because it's at the lower end of the linear regression, right at the lower end, which was consistent with what we see in the West at much, you know, much more expansive ranges. So they all hung together. I mean, there was a lot of uh, pushback, right? When your findings came out, uh, people are very resistant to that message. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, I'm writing another book about that, believe it or not, a short one. I don't intend to be longer because I'm writing a short one because uh, it did involve a series of about 40 or 50 years almost of incessant pushback, intense, very hostile. You know, yeah. at times. And so your question is very pertinent to what I'm now trying to summarize. Where did that come from? 
why does it exist? How long has it been going on for? And so I'm really asking that question of myself. We've done a lot of work over the years. I've looked into the question. It starts from many, many years ago. It comes from back in, I would argue, in the 1800s, when, when animal protein was first discovered. And at that time, interestingly, by the way, this little story is kind of neat. Uh, uh, in, in 1839, 1830s, a Dutch chemist uh, was just learning something about nutrition at that time. And uh, he was learning that uh, dogs needed meat to survive. So he wanted to know, you know, what was in meat. So he's a chemist. He started isolating something out of it. And he finally got a chemical out of it. And that was the first nutrient ever discovered. He had to give it a name. He didn't know what to name it. But he finally named it after the Greek word, proteos, P-R-O-T-E-I-O-S, which means first or primary importance. And so uh -huh. there was that was that thought in his mind and his colleagues that what he discovered was something dramatic. So the protein, the word protein comes from a prime importance, if you will. Well, that so, it went, so it went through the years and, and then couple that with some other history that's really fascinating too. We got caught up in the idea and we never turned around. We just, we, we just believed in it, you know, up to the hill that became almost like a religion. So everybody started believing that protein, which everybody thought was only from animals, it's not. When, right. it, was finally, when it was finally discovered in plants, uh, then there was some other research conducted in the early 1900s arguing that, yes, but the animal protein is better because more of it's retained, technically, for good purposes. And those good purposes, was, it meant faster rate of growth, which is kind of nonsense, to be honest about it. Uh, but now we know that the more protein retained, more heart disease we get, more cancer we get, and so forth. Plus, there's also one of the chief criticisms I hear, because I'm on a plant-based diet, uh, a phrase that I believe you coined. Uh, and a lot of the pushback I get is, uh, you know, that, oh, you don't want, you don't want to have carbs. Carbs are terrible. You know, you should be on a low-carb diet. Everybody, you know, everybody knows that. And, I mean, that's really not true. Uh, in, in theory, you can get a lot of your nutrition from carbs as well, and it's healthy and good for you. But again, I find that that's a resistant message from, you know, anytime, any conversation I have. Yeah, that was first uh, described, if you will, in 1973 by a man by the name of Robert Atkins. Yes, yes, physician. yes, yes. And he, uh, at that time, I must tell you, was opposed to some of this new information beginning to emerge at that time, suggesting that eating plants was a good idea. And he was, I guess, offended. He was, but in any case, whatever he was, he, he uh, said, no, the problem is not the high protein, it's not the high fat. You know, he, he was, it's really all the carbs you guys eat, you know, eating plants. And he called it carb, which he coined that word, it's actually carbohydrate, but he shortened it down for, you know, public consumption. And uh, so he started talking about the fact that when we eat all these carbs in the plants, uh, we, we have an increased risk of all kinds of health issues, including obesity and stuff like that. On one point, he captured one point, took it out of context, namely, 
Carbohydrate, you're right, is a, is a massive, con it's a collection of all kinds of uh, carbohydrate-like materials that are a source of energy. That's our she's source of energy. It's very, very good. And it only comes from plants. So by attacking carbs, he was attacking plants because he wanted to retain the animal character to our diet, if you will. And so, but there's one part of his story that sort of resonated, still does today, namely, when he talked about carbs, he was really talking about refined carbohydrates, which means sugar. You know, you get out of, you know, the, the crystallized stuff that we use for cooking and sweetening this, that, and everything else. And so uh, when people consume a lot of that, not the whole carbohydrate, if you consume all the carbohydrate together, everything is great, no problem. But he was referring, unfortunately, just to the table sugar. And he's saying, we do much of that. Yeah, okay, we do. That's, that's an issue. So when people switch over, and he found this, when people switch over to their usual uh, poor diets, to be honest about it, over to this so-called low-carb diet, which is high in protein and fat, and he's saving the animals, you know, saving the animal food. So when they consume that kind of diet, the first thing they do, they go into the so-called ketotic state. And then uh, ketones right. are formed, and that's a breakdown of fat, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, this led, that, that was the so-called low-carb diet. And so you see a loss of weight in the beginning. I mean, heck, everybody believes that, especially if they're overweight. They start eating that kind of diet and losing, well, oh, this is for me, you know, kind of thing. Their cholesterol actually drops a bit too, so it looks pretty good. Uh, but what he was really doing, I have to tell you, he had a clinic where he was bringing in patients and he, he was putting them on a, a, a venal a drop, a venous drop, you know, tapped into their blood. And they were sitting there with uh, this, this blood drip into their veins. And what he was doing, he was arguing at that time that he could determine our problems uh, by which vitamin they might be missing. And so by then that analysis, so he claimed, he could give them supplements. That's what he was doing. And by the time he passed away by heart, of heart disease, I should add, but by the time he died of heart disease at 73, it was, he had something like a hundred million dollar fortune from selling these supplements. Yeah. So, yeah. but you know, it was still a, it was a catchy phrase for the public and, you know, and, and, and then, when he passed, uh, another man by the South Beach diet, he, it, the name kept changing a little bit over the years. Every maybe 10 years, there were a new name, like a new diet. Right. Paleo diet, ketogenic diet, keto diet for short, paleo diet, you know, you name it. And it's still going on today. Well, you recommend, as I said, you coined the phrase plant-based whole food diet, uh, which I'm going to give you an opportunity to describe. I mean, I, I'm on it. I, it's not a big secret, you know, to anyone who listens to me. You know, I'm a cancer survivor. And after uh, after that, I, I use that as uh, as Chris Wark, I guess, as, as a divine tap on the shoulder to change my life. Um, so I, I started, uh, you know, I walk about a half hour a day and I changed how I eat completely uh, to plant-based whole food, which really fruits, vegetables, nuts, you know, seeds, um, right. tea, uh, spices, uh, all that is how I f fill up my plate. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about what your recommendations are for the, uh, that kind of diet? And then I'd like to get into, if we could, 
the studies that you've seen and been involved with in reversing the effects of heart disease and uh, its impact on cancer? Well, the best way to describe that diet, I think, uh, at least in my mind, is the way I've done it. Uh, first off, I want to acknowledge the fact that uh, the biological uh, explanation for this <clears throat> is extraordinarily complex. I mean, it's almost infinite complexity involved in all the reactions that go on in our cells. Okay, so that, that's a given. Uh, you know, the whole it's the whole in, in a sense. Um, so, with that complexity, uh, I think I have been able to derive a couple of really simple ideas. Don't you know? Just eat plants. Number one. Number two, try to eat them whole. And by whole, I, I mean, I don't mean we can't cut them up, we can't cook them and so forth and so on. I'm, I'm simply saying that if we eat just plants and reasonably whole food form, uh, when we get access to all the nutrients simultaneously, that's really important. That's what maintains the, the sort of natural state of metabolism. When we're eating it in that particular form, we can almost throw away most of the detailed stuff, stuff we hear about all the time. It's not about this nutrient, that nutrient, something else. That's a bit crazy. That's, that's the traditional way people talk about nutrition. But it's also very confusing because everybody can have their own sort of favorite nutrient or their own favorite food or whatever. And so all I'm saying is that uh, just eat plants, eat them a whole food form. You can have lots and lots of variety. In fact, variety is good. You can mix and match and things like that. That's, that's really important anyhow. So... That's what it is. Eat plants, eat them whole. Right. <laughs> and that's, I mean, when you say whole, uh, for anybody who's maybe new to this, I mean, you're really meaning stay away from processed, right? It's not the same if you're getting something, you know, in a can or that they've processed in some other form. Although, I mean, I think you could have like beans and, and beans that maybe come out of a can that have nothing in there but beans, <laughs> right? That, that don't add other ingredients. But, uh, you know, in general terms, the less processing, the better. Yeah, the, that's right. Uh, the processing has also become a very big, complicated sort of uh, enterprise for decades now. Uh, you know, everything from adding salt and sugar and fat, you know, to some foods to, God knows, you know, you, you name it for all sorts of purposes. And so we have a lot of stuff in there. And, uh, you know, a lot of the foods that we buy in a store, um, and uh, as a result, uh, we have to worry about what are these things doing? And, and, and for the most part, most of that stuff is not going to be terribly harmful. But I must tell you uh, that look, looking back, and this is about the only way we can really assess that kind of question, uh, those, those products usually found in cans, as you, as you know, or maybe boxes, but, but they're loaded up with, particularly with three things salt, sugar, and fat, right. each of which are sort of addictive. And they help sell the products, let's face it. So, you know, you fill up your gut with uh, those things, especially the sugar and the fat, you want, you want more, go back and buy some more. You know, that's the way it is. And so uh, the biggest problem with the processed foods, in my view, is their content of the sugar and the, and the fat. But there's some other stuff in there too, that, you know, chemicals that are in there to, let's say, preserve them and maybe for a bit or whatever, 
some of those things are on the carcinogenic list, right? The national uh, carcinogenic list, and they're and they and they're preserving our food. Well, those those are that carcinogenic list. I, I was very deeply involved in that myself in the earlier days. Uh, that's a little bit of a overemphasized concept, I should say. Cancer starts with those kind of chemicals. That's true enough, but some of those chemicals are actually found in nature. And so that's what causes mutations. So the cancer starts with a mutation process. And that's often, and by mutation, I mean an alteration of the genes. Right. And so we start with an altered gene, some of which give rise to cancer. So sure enough, they do that. But there's a lot of stuff in nature almost that will do that too. But our body's been prepared for that for a few million years. And, and it can react to it and handle it. Uh, and so those things get classified as carcinogens. Um, quite, that's quite a story in and of itself. Um, some of those things are worrisome, I, I think, but not terribly significant. And if we get caught up too much in emphasizing their importance, we, our attention goes away from what really counts, namely consuming a high animal protein diet, to be honest about it. So the really big effect is the nutritional effect, not those things. And do you have to take a position on uh, recommending organic or uh, conventional? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I just like to rely on the research, of course, as much as I possibly can. But uh, yeah, we have some evidence, again, a little bit uh, weak, that organic is better than uh, otherwise. Uh, it makes sense. Let me just say that. It certainly makes sense. Um, it's, to some extent, our inadequacy in science of being able to detect, to detect the differences. But I must tell you, the evidence is good enough to prefer consuming organic food when we can get it. We do that. And, uh, you know, and also the organic food, as you probably know, they usually have a better flavor. Yes, definitively. Yeah, so if you get it from your garden or something like that, that's a good deal. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that's the best way to go. But uh, if you go to the store and there's no organic stuff there, uh, that doesn't mean, well, okay, we don't need to eat plants. Eat them anyhow, <laughs> because, because the effect is really pretty great. Now, can you, will you speak at all on the, the research or the studies uh, concerning the impact of uh, plant-based whole food diets on heart disease and also on cancer? Yes, I'm glad you raised that question about heart disease because you know, I was learning in the laboratory under the lab animal conditions, of course, in the biochemistry that, you know, cancer could be turned on and off, if you will. And I found it really fascinating. And then that was in the late 70s, early 80s, and so forth and so on. Finally, when the China study came out in the New York Times in 1990, uh, I, I was introduced to a couple of people, physicians, who had been doing something like this, not, not, the, not the nutritional part of it, but now they were uh, taking some patients and putting them on this kind of diet and seeing it reversed. I'm referring specifically to Dr. Esselton, very good friend of mine at Cleveland Clinic. Also, Dr. Ornish. Had the know, famous study with Dr. Ornish, sure. That's right. And so what, the, what they were showing, of course, I made, we became friends over the years, obviously. Uh, they called me and we, we worked up some relationships, but they were showing that, you know, people with heart disease, when if they switched, to this kind of diet, they could be reversed. Quite amazing. I mean, it's consistent with what I was saying in the laboratory. 
But then there were some others that came along too that, hey, we can reverse diabetes, which is also quite amazing. Cancer uh, is mostly anecdotal at the present time. Uh, the, re the research community, and this is, this is a really sad story, the scientific community does not want this tested in cancer patients, I have to tell you that. And I'm telling you specifically because of real experiences. Um, the cancer industry is so huge monetarily, as you know, um, and, and it's actually resting on the use of chemotherapy drugs, let's face it. Now, most of these chemotherapy drugs for many years was called cytotoxic chemotherapy, which means that they're chemo agents, chemotherapy agents that actually kill cancer cells. It sounds in principle, okay, we kill cancer cells. We get a drug to kill cancer cells. But in reality, those, in, those products were more or less really uh, promoted pretty vigorously with Nixon's uh, administration in 1931, I mean, 1971. And so uh, that went on for some years and uh, it became a big industry. You know, using chemotherapy, cytotoxic chemotherapy agents treat cancer patients, different ones for different cancers, if you will. Finally, from 1971 until 9 to 2000, and so 2004 publication, uh, some Australian American researchers got together and had a, went had looked back at the collection of these data on cancer patients. By this time, you know, thousands, you know, of, of subjects who had passed because of this and that, and so they analyzed the data. And of course, I'm sure you'll be interested in this. I don't think it's in the China study. I don't remember. But in any case, what, what they found was that of all the chemotherapy agents being used for a total of 22 different kinds of cancer, okay? 22 different kinds of cancers being used over some 30 years. Uh, it turned out that uh, in terms of asking the question, were they working? Well, they increased five-year survival by 2.1%, which is insignificant. As a matter of fact, one can make the argument, if anything, it shortens the, the, the problem, the shortens of life, because some of these cancer agents are also carcinogens themselves. They are, they cause they, mutagens. They kill, they kill others. They kill all the cells, not just the cancer cells, right? Exactly. exactly. And so they get all these side effects, as you know, and stuff like that. It was a bad deal. That was published in 2004. They, so the industry kind of dropped that word like a hot potato and uh, they came back and then talking about, oh, we got a new class of drugs called immunotherapy. And they were arguing that within immunotherapy type drugs, that they're, in this case, the drugs are going to rely on what the body does with its immune system. They're going to enhance the immune system. Again, it makes sort of intrinsic sense a little bit. But once again, we're getting into the same nonsense, I have to tell you. Uh, and uh, it turns out that nutrition, same kind of nutrition we're talking about here, has an amazing effect on the immune system. Right. And so the best way to handle these diseases, let's, just, let's make our immune system healthy right out loud. That's the best way to do it. And there are many studies on particular foods. I mean, I remember reading a study about the effect of ginger uh, uh, testing with ovarian cancer. Right. And, and if you used it, uh, the ginger laboratory, of course, in, in, a, uh, in a dish and you put cancer cells, both chemotherapy and ginger, ground ginger would kill the cells. The distinction being when they tried to kill the, the stem cell, the chemotherapy didn't kill the stem cell, but the ginger actually did. 
Yeah, the ginger, of course, as you know, is a natural product. That raised another question, incidentally, a very major question. Uh, we do find that some drugs in the short term, uh, whatever it is, is they seem to have an effect. We can look and see it, and we can see effect. Aspirin, that's a good example, cotton pain and stuff like that. So we, we can see these kinds of things in a lot of cases. That impressed some folks. Uh, and then, but they had to get a patent. If they wanted to sell it, they had to get a patent. Well, you can't get a patent on, on natural materials. On ginger, no. right? <laughs> on ginger, that's right. So you have to isolate the factor out of it that most accounts for that effect. And so what, what they do is they isolate the chemical out. They, they justify on, on the basis of some biochemistry says, okay, it's just this mechanism here or that one or whatever. So they kind of build a case around that. Then they get intellectual property protection through patents and stuff. That gives them about a, a 20 year life or so, 20 years of, of working with the chemical. That's enough time to make a lot of money. And so the whole drug industry, I have to tell you, the whole drug industry uh, is founded on that principle of one thing, hit one mechanism, treating one disease. And that's not, I'm, I'm writing quite a bit about that. And that's just simply not the way it is. But that's our drug industry. Well, then there's no money in, in telling somebody to go out and buy fruits and vegetables, right? Or, or that's right. Exactly. I mean, although, although managing the care, I would argue uh, to the contrary, so to speak, because there, there, there is a benefit for people who don't have knowledge and don't want to go out and read studies and read books uh, to the medical professionals guiding them as to, you know, dietary changes and nutrition and, and perhaps the foods that are best known for certain types of cancer, uh, you know, and helping to test them and watch them. So there is a, uh, you know, there. There is the ability to earn money, you know, in advancing yes. in this manner. I, I just think it's not not quite as attractive, right? Or, or as probably financially uh, bountiful. Yeah, my uh, my son, my youngest son, who uh, co-authored co the China study with me, he was, at the, he was actually in theater. So he's a good writer. That's why he came along and worked with me. But he liked it. The information he saw went back to med school, got his medical degree. And now he's at the other faculty, the University of Rochester. And so he's been carrying out some of this work. And recently, he just now has completed a study of breast cancer, uh, women with uh, stage four breast cancer. And so he, th this is going to trial period. He's going to be publishing it. But he basically is using a whole food plant-based diet to see what effect on this has on women with four, stage four breast cancer. I mean, that's pretty serious. It's pretty advanced at that stage. Right. But he wasn't allowed to have a group in there, not even of volunteers. We wasn't allowed to have a, the evening study volunteers using a diet alone. Because, you know, the medical profession would argue, well, we already know how to take care of breast cancer, which they don't, but they say that. So he, he did the study on women with chemotherapy. And so what he's seen so far, and he's going to be published shortly, he even saw a benefit then you know, of this diet, but he, uh, it's, it's very exciting, but he actually petitioned for, uh, put an application for funding from NIH, which I, I know the organization very well, so gave, gave me all the research. They don't want to have a study like that done. They don't want to have a study like that done. And so they wouldn't even, they, they just sort of turned it down. It's crazy and quite annoying. <laughs> well, yeah, that. I don't know why, um 
honestly don't really understand why the main goal isn't just getting patients better. Yeah. I mean, why, right. why is the main goal in a situation like that? How much money, you know, we can make? Why isn't it just how much impact? Isn't that how it's supposed to be, right? When you become a doctor, isn't it supposed to be that you're doing that to, um, to, to help people stay healthy? I mean, somewhere along the way, I think, I think, you know, you, you can lose sight of that, that the main goal was you got into it to, to help people. And, you know, yeah, I understand that you need to earn a living too. I'm not diminishing that in any way. It's a lot of education and a lot of hard work to become a doctor. But, and you know, I, I wish that no one loses sight of the fact that the main goal, though, has to still be to make a difference uh, in your patients' lives and, and to help them. I mean, I know Dean Ornish also did a study with prostate cancer, did he not? Um, yeah. Dealing with this very same issue, but I, I mean, they were on stage four. I don't believe. I think they were more like stage one uh, or early people, early uh, onset of prostate cancer. I, I may be wrong, though. You can correct. I know me. You're, you're right. That's about right. His was kind of limited. I know him very well, and I know that study. But it was uh, useful in the sense that he was seeing some effect, beneficial effect on early stage prostate cancer. Is true. Uh, but the additional information we've now learned about that, the chief uh, dietary factor, which represents the total diet, quite frankly, but if there is a single food that is uh, relevant to prostate cancer, it's milk. Right. There's been a lot of information out there on milk. I think you speak of that as well, uh, about the right. negative impacts of milk on, on our bodies. Could you, could you talk about that? Yeah, because I sort of had to. Right? That was part of my struggle because I came from a farm milking cows. Yeah. And I did my doctoral dissertation actually on promoting the growth of animals more effectively so we could have more milk. That's where I came from. So for me, it's been, it was a struggle. Uh, either I went with the data or I went with the, with the flow. And you know, I have to tell you, this is really, to me, very, very important personally and professionally. I was able to survive what I did without getting fired because I had academic freedom. I had tenure and I got tenure now more than 50 years ago when I was in my thirties. And so I was at able- Cornell, At Cornell University, which of course is right. Ivy League. It's-, it's Yeah, you know, so that made quite a difference. prestigious. Yeah, it has been. And uh, I was in the department. In fact, we were ranked number one in the country for many years and I had a big program in that department. so. It gave me, but I have to tell you, Cornell at the same time, is, it, it bends with the wind just like other places do. Uh, and uh, they are very beholden to the dairy industry. Uh, I'm being very vocal about that. I love their university, but some individuals in the university are beholden to the industry. So, you know, what do you do with that? And uh, that's, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, well, let's talk, let's get into that and talk about, for, help educate people in terms of, uh, of the impact of milk on the body. Well, first of all, milk is, I believe, if and, and again, I could be wrong, please jump in and correct me. Um, milk truly is generated from uh, pregnant cows, is that right? Yes, that's all, all of it's pregnant cows. Right, so it's the equivalent of a woman who has breast milk so the, the milk inside the cow is intended to to feed a baby calf, right? I mean, it's, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's not from, like, not every cow has milk, 
pregnant cows have milk. Well, yeah, that's that's a requirement. They don't give milk unless they're pregnant. Right. That's part, that's part of the deal. But in, in any case, um, you know, we're the only species that I know of on the face of the planet that uh, drink milk after weaning and we go and get it from another species. But think about that. Yeah. It's a bit weird. Yeah. It's a bit weird. Um, and uh, I don't know any other species does that. It keeps on drinking you know, infant milk that they're supposed to have, you know, but go get it from another species. Come on, give me a break. That just doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. Right. That is, I mean, most people don't know that. I myself have had conversations where I say, well, you know, I mean, just like breast milk is intended to help the baby in the early stages of, of its life, you know, when it's born, you know, the, the milk we're getting is intended to help a baby calf grow up in the early stages of its life. It's really not intended to be, you know, for humans, uh, you know, and people, you know, will argue with me or, you know, not believe me, but that I'm correct, right? That is the case. That's right. And I will tell you, uh, as I say, I've been really close to that, that story because I was in the business and essentially then happened to change my mind after I saw all the evidence. But, you know, we see things about milk as we all always believe for many years. Namely, milk is good for your bones and teeth. So it was said for decades and decades. Well, it turns out the higher the consumption of dairy, the higher the rate of bone fracture, which is an indication of osteoporosis. That's, that's well established. The higher the rate of dairy, yeah, the higher the rate of dairy, the higher is the risk for osteoporosis. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, that's been published since the 1980s. So what is that, 20, about 40, 40, 50 years? And yet uh, a secret. <laughs> and yet yeah. fundamentally a secret. <laughs> yeah, the dairy industry doesn't want to let that out. But uh, that's well established. Uh, and uh, it's been, and what's in the milk isn't, just the calcium, I should say, it's the animal protein. The animal protein being consumed, whether it's in dairy or meat or whatever, the animal protein causes a loss of calcium from the body. And calcium is important for our bones, let's face it. So, you know, you start drinking a lot of milk and get a lot of the animal protein in there. Uh, what, what it does, it allows for depletion of the calcium from the bones, which is a problem. And, and, and also there are others, other impacts uh, of the da of dairy on our body. Could you speak of that? Yes. Uh, I mean, dairy is well, it's pretty well established, uh, not only anecdotally, but uh, in the clinic, uh, being, a, being a principal uh, allergen. You know, a lot of people have allergies to, to dairy once or, or another, that that's an issue. Uh, it's also uh, with less evidence, but nonetheless convincing, I think, uh, it's a cause of migraine headaches. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that also dairy raises blood cholesterol levels, which in turn associates with heart disease. And the protein of milk, by the way, is casein. That's a, that, that is the protein that I used in my own research to show what animal protein does. It's all about the protein of cow's milk that has this very damning effects. And what about hormones? I mean, are, isn't that an issue as well? 
when uh, well it was thought to be and a lot of people talked about it, it became popular in the public press uh, but quite frankly uh, it's not the hormones necessarily is in there because what happens is that when we're consuming dairy our body turns on the synthesis of our own hormones growth hormones for example estrogen in the case of women testosterone in the case of men for lack of women so what happens you know that by consuming this animal protein based diet we increase our own synthesis of these hormone products that's the probably the real problem it's not so much what's in the I don't want, I'm not in any way trying to make excuses you know, for, for the product that they have hormones in it, but that's, that was a bit overdone, that claim. Now, do you recommend other products in terms of, uh, um, you know, you'll hear a lot about almond milk. Um, do you recommend a substitute product for milk for, for well, patients or no? First off, I, I would like to challenge the concept we need so-called milk because that word was coined for cow's milk, obviously. And that was a big battle in the in industry when soy milk came out and then almond milk. And, you know, they, they were going back and forth. Hey, you can't use that word milk. Only, you know, anyhow, at, at the end of the day, the uh, plant products were able to be called milk. Okay. So just, just that for background. But those, those products, uh, let's call them juice, or I don't know what you call them milk. There's a number of them, rice and almond and oat milk and what is it, soy milk, obviously. Coconut milk, I think. <laughs> yeah, we, we have all those kind of things. They're good. That, that's fine. I don't, I don't get too excited about the idea you drink them, but uh, you don't have to drink them. You can just use them for all the things we use them for. Now, study-wise, You've seen, I assume, uh, research or you've been involved. I know you've been involved in so many studies, uh, but the impact of certain types of nutrition on the heart. Um, could we talk about that a little bit? I mean, because like salt is a huge issue, right? For uh, adding, adding salt into your diet uh, can have a devastating effect on heart failure, um, bloating, you know, you know, the water not you know building up inside your body not being released and a lot of that is to do with uh, the way you're eating and just changing that can as you were talking about reversing heart disease uh, can we talk about that a little bit and what you've seen in the research sure uh, as I said before uh, Dr. Colgo uh, Esselstyn uh, and uh, Dr. Ornish uh, they're the ones that uh, established pretty clearly this effect Although Dr. John McDougall, uh, yes, you know, yes. working generally with his patients, uh, had done much of the same thing. Uh, so they're, they're all good friends of mine. And, and uh, so what, uh, and they do that by just switching, switching over to a plant-based diet, low in fat, by the way. What, what they would argue, they, I, I, I have to tell them that's not about the fat, really, it's about the animal protein, but nonetheless, it's all that stuff working together. Uh, and, uh, so uh, whether, how much salt is, you know, how much of that fact attributed to salt, let's say, or whatever, you know, some other things. Uh, the salt, of course, you know, you, you can get too high and what that leads to is hypertension primarily. And hypertension in turn is related to stroke. as a form of heart disease, that's this cardiovascular disease entity. Um, and uh, it, so it, it plays a role, it has an effect. You gotta be careful about that. We don't need more than, you know, 
raised by minimal amount. So we should be careful about it because salt is very addictive. Yeah. You know, some people really jump into it and eat a lot. So they get really high blood pressure and that in turn is associated with heart disease. Uh, unfortunately, I've had a chance to look at that question a little more carefully in recent years. Um, and uh, it's interesting, the, the blood pressure medications like amlodipine, I'll name that, it's a calcium blocker, uh, that, that depresses, it's convincing, it convincingly depresses blood pressure, right? On average, this is a summary of about 26 studies. Um, the top number, the systolic value, it drops by 12 points on average, and the bottom number, the diastolic, drops by seven points. That's sort of almost like the industry standard from everything I can see. They sort of accepted that. So that's sure enough. They, they do that. They cause blood pressure to go down. Therefore, you would you would suspect the obvious thing. Okay, stroke is going to go down. Blood pressure, you know, heart disease. Do you know, I have to tell you, they never mentioned this, but I've been looking at the literature and I'm going to have to call them out on this a little bit. Uh, the question of getting that information is actually having that information is questionable. It doesn't necessarily train. It sounds like a good idea, right? But but we I'm I'm in science. I, I want to know a little more cert with some certainty what I'm talking about. And so in this case, uh, it doesn't translate into a lower risk for uh, stroke. Is uh, not yet. I think I think it does. I would agree that that's probably true. But we need we need better data on that. Now, can you explain in the in the most basic of uh, words, I guess, because I I know I've been unable to do it in any conversation I, I've ever had, and um, somebody uh, with your, of course, uh, superior you know knowledge, uh, could you explain in basic terms what's happening in the body that's that allows nutrition that allows this type of food to help reverse heart disease or help your body fight off cancer? What is happening by get, taking this food in as opposed to taking in, uh, you know, steak every night? Like what, if, if, if somebody starts having a plant-based whole food diet, and again, when I say that term, I'm using it to indicate, you know, vegetables, fruits, uh, nuts, seeds, uh, uh, whole grains, teas, spices, foods like that. So what, what, but what's, what is the effect it's having on the body that allows it, your body to, you know, to correct heart disease, allows your body to fight cancer? Well, you know, that, that's a, that's a big question. Much it is. I know. That's why I keep but, it to you. <laughs> but in any case, uh, you know, we all, whether we're uh, professionals or not, uh, we like to have some definition to what we tend to think. And so we like to think of specific things causing specific things. And so we look for those kinds of, uh, you know, answers, you know, certain kinds of answers. Uh, and uh, my, my friends, you know, like Ornish and Esselton and so forth, they, they kind of, they, they've not been trained in my area. So they tend to also even will talk about specific mechanisms, if you will, as being uh, maybe responsible kind of thing. Well, I actually learned from my research that, I have a very different uh, definition of nutrition, which I think goes far better than trying to explain things in terms of one thing at a time. You know, when, when and I, we did these studies, I did this systematically over a period of about a dozen to 15 years with graduate students doing a whole doctoral dissertation on each one. We looked for the mechanism 
by which the animal protein increases cancer, okay? So for example, my first student uh, did a study to see what effect did this high protein diet have on, let's say the transport of the carcinogen, this immunogen into the cell. Well, the high protein diet increased the rate of transport into the cell. Oh, these, that looks like the mechanism. But then when these carcinogens go into the cell, there's an enzyme there that converts them over to a product that's either less toxic or in fact, more toxic, converts to a product that binds to the DNA and that causes a mutation. What is a high protein diet? It increases that enzyme activity. So therefore it increases the risk for mutations. Then we have a mechanism in there too that is, protects us from these events that occur on a routine basis. It's called DNA repair. What did the high protein do? It didn't increase it, it decreased it. That was a good one. The high protein decreased that. And we kept going on and on and on. You know, at, at the end of some years, and I say each one of these took a lot of work, but in any case, it turned out after looking for about 10 or 12 mechanisms, every time we looked for one, and I was looking for one because I was sort of in the pharmacology area at that time, because that's what we try to do. We understand if we could find a mechanism, maybe we could find a drug to treat that mechanism. That's what that's the basis for statins, for example. So we started looking for the mechanism. Do you know at the end of the day, there is no mechanism? There, there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of mechanisms all coming and working together, involving all the hundreds of thousands of different kinds of nutrients. So all of a sudden, I'm calling it Mother Nature. That's the way she works. You know, we have this enormous complexity, you know, that comes from food, a variety of foods especially. Enormous complexity, so we end up with everything sort of going wrong or right, whatever the case may be. It all works in a very uh, um, symphonic way, it's like a symphony. It's amazing. And it's nothing more than nature. So the whole notion of, let's say, looking for one thing at a time, which was part of my game, everybody else's, and people in the public think this too. We try to find one thing to blame or one kind of drug to use. It doesn't make any sense. Because when we use, when we take that approach, and this is something you may be surprised to hear, the entire drug industry is founded on that idea. Using one chemical at a time, that's what it is. Do you know the drugs, that's just the side effects, just the side effects of drugs is the third leading cause of death in this country. I did not know that, no. Right behind heart disease and cancer. And that's probably an understatement. Uh, plus the fact that about 85% of all drugs introduced to the market basically uh, uh, are uh, taken from the market after about two years. Oh, sure. I do see the commercials for the recalls and the class actions yeah. all the time. So, but then you, you, you sort of wonder, where in the world did we get so hung up in this? And I said I spent about... 12 years myself in the pharmacology community. So I, I'm totally bathed in that concept. And that's why we looked for a single mechanism in those days. When I come to realize when, you know, it was also nutrition, when he brought the two concepts together, nutrition won out, hands over, I mean, just, just no comparison. Nutrition does it right. Uh, so the synergy, the synergy of that kind of food in the body in its most basic form, just helps your body fix itself. Is That's that right, it? exactly, exactly. That's what it does, fixes yeah. itself. Now, 
even for people who eat this, uh, you know, on a plant-based whole food diet, there's still some criticism of certain types of foods. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about that um, in terms of uh, potatoes, uh, nutritional yeast, things like that. Are these things you, you still recommend people eating or no? Uh, you'd say that, okay. that, that's a good question because it does come up from time to time. And, and uh, most of those events that we become pretty certain of, let's say, let's say regarding certain foods, uh, they, they tend to be uh, allergic reactions. In other words, we all, not all of this, but a lot of people have sensitivity to specific things sometimes. Where that comes from, we don't know. Uh, I think there's some evidence that probably starts during our uh, nursing years, possibly even when we're in utero during pregnancy. Who knows? But we do incur occasionally some of these uh, sort of allergic responses. There they are, and you know that's it. And when you learn about them, you just don't use them. Uh, and, and so that can happen. That can happen. Uh, it's not a criticism of a whole food plant-based diet. As a matter of fact, the evidence that I'm familiar with, that'll tend to happen more in those who are eating wrong food. Right. Because they're partly healthy, I mean, they're partly ill in the first place. And so those who have a little bit of allergies and on top of that problem, that's that's an issue. That's an issue. And what about people who, who criticize potatoes and say you should stay away from potatoes? Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, potatoes is a really good food um, because it's a source along with other tubers, for example, and grains. Um, that uh, it's, a, it's a source of... Um, that's the chief source of energy for a body for crying out loud. You know, so it's really good for that purpose. And, and as long as we should try to eat them whole. The problem with potatoes, I guess, in some cases, is that people make them, they, they turn around and they- Make french fries out of them. <laughs> exactly, what they soak them up with oil, they do this and that. So when, when you have that kind of thing, it's a little bit different story. But when we're just talking about the native food, no worry, no worry. In fact, you know, I never heard of a potato allergy. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know whether there is such a thing. Maybe there is, but uh, you mentioned oil. What's your position on like extra virgin olive oil? Well, there's two. That's that has to a little bit. You have to nuance that uh, discussion a little bit. Uh, oil is present in plant foods, especially nuts. Sure. Olives. Olives. Let's say. Okay. Um, uh, avocado, coconut, right. we have all these oils in there. When when we eat those foods with that oil in, it's good. It's good, let's say, that's just plain good. Here's what we do though, in the modern age. We reach into those foods and we extract from that some oils. We extract oil from corn. We extract oil from uh, sesame seeds. We extract oil from this and that. And then we turn around and put it in a bottle. Right, then we use it, we pour it on our salads, we do this and that stuff with it. Now it's called added oil. Now in that particular case, the oil where as it was good in the whole food, nothing wrong with it whatsoever, but it's good there, but when you take it out and you put it, ice it like that, all bets are off. Because for one thing, we use it excessively. Come back to your question on uh, virgin olive oil. Um, I, I had to just discuss this just recently, a couple of weeks ago, with uh, my Italian friends, and I've lectured many times in, in Italy. Obviously, in Mediterranean countries, they they're sensitive about this, uh, but uh, that's because they be, they're using it quite a bit. 
We use it even more in many cases. But when it's virgin olive oil, olive oil it's a bit different. Now you can argue that, you know, it's the, it's the natural stuff, right? It's maybe not all wrapped up and cleaned up with this, that, and everything else, uh, highly refined, if you will. But if it's a native oil, let's call it olive juice, for example, just for fun, call it olive juice. Uh, in that particular case, it's, uh, it's better actually from real science. It's not as harmful as is, let's say, saturated fat and unsaturated fat. So there's a bit of advantage, yes. And they make a, unfortunately, they make a big deal out of that. And the ones who are really making a big deal out of it is the olive oil industry. <laughs> yeah. I was at the conference when, in fact, they first announced this here at Harvard many years ago. And that was one of the chief speakers. So I, I know where that came from. Uh, and uh, so that's really taken off. It's a, they have a nice budget for advertising, but you know, if, if one's going to use this kind of oil, I guess it's a little better than the others, but still you got to, got to be, got to be moderation, moderation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you take a position on nutritional yeast, which is big in the uh, vegan community? Yeah. It, I, well, I don't, I don't have any uh, concerns about it, to be honest about it. Uh, yeast is a, a, obviously those little uh, plants, if you will, you know, are, are growing and what doing well, and they're producing products rather like other plants. And so, uh, and they have a rather interesting taste to them. So, you know, the, uh, I, I don't, I don't have, I haven't heard any downside to nutrition yeast. I think it's probably a very good product. Well, what about when they actually add, uh, you know, what amounts to, I guess, synthetic vitamins? Usually they're, um, you know, to, to make them a good source of vitamin B, you know, they're supplemented with, uh, with like a synthetic type vitamin uh, to, to have such a high vitamin B content. D is that still good or do you, do you no. recommend? No. No, I, I also was, uh, I guess I've lived long enough to not seeing everything. But, but in any case, back in the days in the 1980s, uh, when the vitamin supplement industry, it wasn't even in industry at that time. Uh, there was a group of entrepreneurs, let's say it that way, who were very interested in taking advantage of a author of a National Academy of Science report on diet and cancer that I was the author of. I was one of the co-authors. So they were making claims. They took out a front page cover story in Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and Report. They went out with, I don't know what, how much money they spent, but they were going to swamp the country with all these beautiful vitamin supplements uh, because of our report. But we've explicitly said in the report, this does not apply to vitamins, but they didn't care. They want to say it anyhow, so they were getting away with it. So the uh, National Academy of Science actually asked, they took them to court, Federal Trade Commission, and challenged their claims. And they asked me to be their, rep to be their witness. So I spent three years in the docket, you know, contending their claims. This is a vitamin supplement people. And I couldn't agree with them. Uh, they got a little bit upset with all of that. But then thereafter, this was about 1984, 85, 86 or so. Thereafter, the next 15 years, a lot of these supplements were being tested, you know, in human studies to see if they really worked. Uh-uh. No. Some of these vitamin supplements have the opposite effect, what they're intended, which leads to a concept, by the way. Uh, Tony, this, this is kind of interesting. When the nutrients in the food 
you can bet your life is doing good things if it's an animal food that is. When it's in the food, it's good, good things. The moment you take it out and make it and put it in a pill or something like that, all bets are off. In a classic study, it was done, a beautiful study way back in 1981 with beta carotene, which is the pro vitamin A. What they found was that among heavy smokers who get lung cancer, as we all know, they, they first off learned that smokers who had higher levels of beta carotene in their blood had a lower risk of, of cancer or lung disease, uh, lung cancer. They had a lower risk of lung cancer. So they thought at the time, and rightfully so in a sense, let's take the beta carotene, put it in the tablet, let's try that. So we can knock down lung cancer. It was very impressive when they looked at it in the blood. But when they put it in a, in a capsule and they, get, they organized the study, this is Norwegian and American scientists at the time, they took these capsules and they gave it to a bunch of uh, smokers, thinking that, that uh, beta carotene is gonna reduce lung cancer risk. Well, sure enough, the people consuming more beta carotene food, yeah, it still went down like I saw before, but the ones taking the supplement actually increased lung cancer. Wow. So the beta carotene did exactly the opposite. It was statistically significant, I mean, really for real. This wasn't a nonsense thing. So what do you recommend for people who are not uh, having animal, you know, uh, products for vitamin B? Yeah, well, B is, you know, there's a whole lot of vitamin B. You're talking about B12 probably. Right. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. B, B12. Yeah. What, what do you recommend? Uh, because unless you're well, having, you know. I, I think uh, the uh, the jury is out on that one to use your, your uh, profession's uh, expression. But I, I think. The, what what is there's been some a couple of claims that you know they did this and that uh, B12 is important yes it it prevents uh, let's say a kind of anemia to some extent and that's that's useful and important no question about it uh, very small amounts are needed the real question is do we get enough okay a lot of the B12 we get uh, is from eating animals because the organisms in the rumen of ruminants, for example, are making the B12. So we get some in animal food. Uh, we tend not to see it in plants, but on the other hand, plants growing in organic soil actually take up from the soil a lot of B12-like materials that seem to have similar properties. So I, I have to tell you, I, I, I'm not for the B12 supplements, but also I have nothing against them. So yeah, for me, your expression, jury's out. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't quite buy into that. Right. right. And, and uh, last, last food, uh, last thing I'll ask you about, what, what about green tea? Uh, about what? Green tea. There's a lot in the market oh. in terms of uh, coverage. I think the press does cover green tea quite a bit as yeah. having a very positive impact on health. Would you agree yeah, there, with that? Yes, there are quite a number of studies actually uh, shown, especially by the Chinese. And in fact, the principal author of those early studies was my good friend and colleague, my counterpart in China for the China study. Oh, wow. So he's the one who, he and his colleagues showed a lot of that. And uh, so there is, uh, yeah, there's some evidence that uh, if anything, it's, uh, I don't want to make a big, I'm, I'm about to make a big claim of it, but there is some evidence, let's say it that way that there is a reduction in the, the heart disease risk of all things. Uh, 
Now, before I let you go, I have to talk about the the Center for Nutrition Studies uh, that, you, you did. <laughs> that you're operating. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? Just, yes, uh, I was teaching a course at Cornell in the 1990s, and uh, it was very popular with students. It was very popular. Uh, unfortunately, the chairman of our department, who was sold out to the dairy industry, pulled that out of the catalog. He wasn't supposed to do that. It was a disgusting thing. Well, anyhow, that's another story. So ended up putting it into a company owned by Cornell that was just beginning in those days to have online courses. So it turned in, we, we took it, we had a foundation, it became a nonprofit. We've had it for years. We've had about 20,000 graduates out of that course. And my daughter, by the way, uh, has been the president of that. Now for the last couple of years, she's got her doctorate in education and curriculum development. She's been on board. Actually, she's, she had just come here to visit. She lives in the Dominican Republic. She's here now, and I thought she was here behind me. But, uh, but in any case, she has a, our operation now is very exciting. We have some uh, microgan studies. We're extending to groups around the world. We've got about forty-five offices around the world. Wow! Uh, it's now being translated into Spanish. The whole thing. We just uh, this week talked to the Italians, and so this course is very exciting. It's been very successful. Uh, it it's now part of Cornell. And so they get a certificate for the course. Oh. And uh, so we, we're really expanding our wings on this one here. And uh, because we have picked up a really good reputation on it, uh, taking this course. Uh, and uh, yeah. And how can people get information about the course? Well, it's a, the uh, URL address is uh, nutrition studies, plural, one word, nutritionstudies.org. Nutritionstudies.org. And there's a big website. You can find all kinds of stuff on the website for the course. I'll, and I'll put a link certainly uh, in the comments below the video for people to find it, you know, easy or easier. Um, right. Now, when when you go to med school, and I promise I know I'm way over, so I just want to get this one little last question out if I could. Um, I've I've heard criticisms that med school teaches a very a minimal. Uh, in the curriculum as to nutrition. Uh, one, would you agree with that? And two, is take is adding this course to a companion, you know, to the education a good idea? First off, your first question is, you know, there's not a single medical school in the United States teaches nutrition. There's a few offer some, some lectures, but none of them teach a, real, a, a course. And the extent to which they even offer any lectures is not, is not the kind of nutrition that does good, right? So this is a really very sad commentary. The profession of nutrition does not, under any circumstances, honor nutrition as a serious scientific subject. I'm writing a new book on that right now. I've spoken probably to somewhere between 150, 200 medical schools around the country. I've talked to a lot of them about signing on to using this information. And it's been difficult to say the least. And so the question arises, why, what is medicine? What is nutrition? It has to go back to something really fundamental we talked about in the very beginning. The medical system is, is developed to uh, solve or alleviate pain, maybe reverse disease, whatever, from the use of drugs, right? Yes. After, after eating the wrong food. Food, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. It's, it's, it's to prevent us from getting the disease in the first place, and actually, in many cases, reverse it after we get it by using this kind of diet. 
Nutrition is a holistic concept. All the nutrients working together. It's beautiful. That's nature. Spectacularly far better and no side effects. It's far better than the drugs. The drugs have lots of side effects. They kill people. And a lot of times they don't work. So that's the difference. We're, now, of course, we're trying to elaborate on that because we don't get a lot of support from the medical profession, let me tell you. <laughs> but, no, uh, it's why I'm, I'm interested in, in reading your new book. The, your latest book you said you're working on is the, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the pushback that you've received, uh, not just you, but nutrition science, I think, is, is not only underrated, but is, you know, there's a big pushback on naysayers, you know, that's, right. it's got, you know, no, none of this is true. It's got no impact. This is not the way to go. Uh, and, and I think, you know, you have to start paying attention to it. It does make a difference. Uh, yep. you know, and that's a message that has to be accepted, but I think the public is skeptical uh, because so many medical professionals that they're interacting with are saying, oh, don't worry about that. Eat what you want, uh, right. you know, and, and, but take this pill. That's right. They're not trained. The nutritionist said they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. <laughs> right. So, so, and I mean, and, and because that there is that pushback, I, I'm interested in reading the book uh, that you're writing. I, I can't wait. I'm excited now, uh, you know, for when it comes out. I hope when it comes out, you'll come back and talk to me about the book. I'll be happy to. By the way, we've got a couple more books that come out. You may know the China study with the first thing. The second was Whole, W-H-O-L-E. That was a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, and, I'm actually familiar with that one as well. And there, there was another one that I had skimmed in the library, and I can't think of the name of it. Was but a small you just came one out called, the, the Future Nutrition, right? The Future Nutrition, yeah. maybe? Right, yeah. Right. Exactly. That came out just uh, two years ago, no, one year and a half ago. Uh, and I'm trying to uh, argue there the case that... Uh, Nutrition is not taken very seriously. Uh, and if we're going to go forward, which you need to do, uh, to solve some really big problems now, like cost of health care, that's a biggie, or like uh, environmental problems, for kind of out loud, that's a really serious problem. We eat the right food, you know, then instead of using the li all the livestock and stuff like that, then, then you know, our, much of our environmental problems go away. Lots of evidence for that. It's amazing. Right, right. It's the number one cause of environmental problems, livestock. Number one cause. You know, you don't really think about that. I mean, I've, re I've read a couple of your books. I haven't read all of them, but I, I, mean, I, love, your, I love your writing. Um, and I thought that they were so informative. When I was going through my, my journey, uh, you know, I, I gobbled up every little bit I could get, you know, out there who was, you know, professionals like yourself who were writing this kind of material to my shock uh there isn't a lot <laughs> you know there no. really isn't a lot and certainly not somebody with your level of qualifications uh and these are best-selling books uh you know and i highly recommend them uh they do talk a lot about nutrition and you know the impact and the studies and really what's out there what can be proven and that's what was telling or convincing for me. This is not just somebody's opinion, right? In the law, oh, we call, in the law, we would call that net opinion, right? When you say something without any scientific backing, right? Usually, we try to have those experts thrown out of court because you can't come in and say, "Oh, this is this is this," without showing 
this is this because like I, I did this research and here's the data and here's how we analyze it. Um, but all there is scientific data that backs up what you're saying. Uh, and I'm, I really loved your books for that. I mean, right. I thought you made it simple that I could understand not having a scientific mind. Uh, and it's such an important message to get out. And I'm grateful for those of you who are in the profession who are sharing your data and who've done the research. Well, that, I have a couple of comments. I really liked what you said. I, I'm not going to take credit for the good writing. Uh, and in each case, I've had a co-author uh, or co-writer. Uh, and uh, it's been great. Uh, uh, that, that's the first thing. The second thing is the China study now has been translated into 50 foreign languages. It's around the world. It's really went far beyond anything I ever thought. Oh, it's a it's a, the preeminent piece of literature out there on this topic. It was probably one of the first things I read uh, in, during during that time in my life. Yeah, one one, one more thing. You just, you're you're an attorney. Your your profession, my profession. You know, we're, we're, there's one thing we have in common. We search for the truth. Only facts matter, right? Right. And we can interpret, you know, everybody can interpret the way they want. But the bottom line is facts are not owned personally. Agreed. Wow. They're, they're, well they're objective. You right. know, we, only, we only own our opinions. We don't own our facts. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah, that's so I it. highly recommend. I recommend your books. Um, you're in some documentaries that are out there. I'll put as many links as I can uh, in, the, in the comments below. Uh, check him check please check him out dr campbell is an expert in the field it's important information and uh, and again i hope i hope doctor you'll come back and uh talk again with me especially when your new book comes out i'd love to i'd love to chat about it to, after i read it i'd love to have you back and, and be able to chat about it well, i'd love to i uh, I'm, I'm committed to do <laughs> whatever I've, I've poured myself into it for many years <laughs> Well, thank you. And thank you for staying over. I'm sorry. I know uh, okay. I went way over on the interview, but I appreciate your time. And it was such an important interview. And um, thank you. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing. I think we're on the same page. <laughs> thank you. And I'm going to say goodbye from, uh, from the podcast and uh, have a great day. Okay. Thanks.